Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Ephesians chapter 5. Turn there. One of the best ways to learn anything, if you're going to learn a discipline, if you're going to learn a skill, one of the best ways to learn it is through what's known as apprenticeship. Apprenticeship is when you watch somebody who's really good at doing something, you watch them do it over and over, and then you practice doing it, and then eventually you get good at doing it. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul is going to describe something very, very similar by saying, be imitators of God. Now, for many, many years, you have heard me say that the reason that we should act in a Christian fashion is because we know what Christ has already done for us. He has forgiven us, therefore we're supposed to be forgiving. He has loved us, therefore we're supposed to be loving. He's been gracious and kind to us, therefore we're supposed to be gracious and kind to each other. Christ then becomes our example And the more we study about Christ and the more we understand about God, the more we become the apprentice of Christ and God, and the more we can then be imitators of God and Christ. Now, it's a little intimidating to think about everything we know about God, especially with what we've been learning about God in Isaiah the last several weeks. We've been seeing the grand glory of God, and yet here's Paul saying, now act like that. That's kind of a tough job. That's kind of a high bar. But he's going to tell us what he means by the phrase, be imitators of God. We sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. And in the lyrics of that song, we talk about God's purity, And so Paul is going to say that we're supposed to walk at a level of purity because, after all, God is pure. We're supposed to conduct ourselves like heavenly people, like people who are longing for and looking toward genuine holiness, looking forward to that day when holiness is going to cover the earth like the seas. That's how we become imitators of God. We're not like the world. Instead, we use God and Christ as our example, and the more we study them, the more we are called to be like them. However, chapter 5 begins with the word, therefore, and as you know, you can never begin anything on therefore. So I thought, now that we'd made it all the way through chapter 4, that we would read chapter 4 so that we could hit The therefore in chapter 5, chapter 4 starts with, I therefore. Oh. (laughs) Chapter 3 starts with, for this reason. So there's really no help here. But I think you can understand Paul's flow of thought. He's building his case. The first three chapters he has said, We are the chosen of God. We are the elect of God. We are the redeemed of God. We have been chosen since before the foundation of the world. We are the elect of God. Knowing all that about yourself, he can then say, now behave like it. Now act like it. Knowing who you are, he can then put the imperative in front of you. Now be Christian because God has made you Christian. So that being the background, I think we can start in chapter 4 with, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness and patience, 
showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves or carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you are renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, Rather, let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I have told you that this word love that is used rather repetitiously here in the book of Ephesians, this is agape. This is the kind of 
love that God demonstrates sacrificially. When he gave his son to save you, he demonstrated how great his love was toward you. Paul then uses a descriptive form of the word agape when he says that you are beloved children. It's a really remarkable thing to get a hold of to understand that we, in all our sinfulness, in all our depravity, in all our rebellion, in all our trying to loose ourselves from the obligations of God, that nevertheless Paul would refer to us as children who are beloved by the God of the universe and that his love for us is demonstrated by everything he's already done for us, all the ways that he has already guaranteed our eternal salvation, all the ways that he has sacrificed for us is all a demonstration of how much he loves us. In chapter 4 there, we read that we are to speak the truth in love. Let me see if I can make a differentiation here. It's really important to speak the truth. I like doctrine. I like the teaching of the Bible. But you can utilize the doctrine of Christianity as a bat to club people over the head with. You can use it as a form of tyranny. You can use it as a form of discipline against people in a way that is terribly unloving. If you want to see that demonstrated, there's always Facebook. There are plenty of folk out there who are bludgeoning other people with the doctrine of the Bible. And that's a form of cruelty, which is why Paul says, when you speak the truth, speak it in love. Temper that truth with the fact that God loved you enough to bring you to that truth. And you didn't wake up one day and go, oh, I got it. I got all the truth there is to know. I got all the doctrines. I'm ready to go. Instead, you know what you know right now because God brought you along patiently teaching you the truth in love. Therefore, he can say, since you are beloved children, he has taught you about himself. Now, as you speak that truth to other people, make sure that you do it in a loving way, in a patient way, in a kind way, recognizing that people are going to need time. It takes time to understand these things. Nobody comprehends it fully, and trust me, when we get to heaven, we're going to find out that we probably really didn't know much at all. <laughs> Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth, oh yes, yes. Speak the truth. But make sure that you're loving in the way that you speak the truth. Otherwise, you can turn the truth into a form of cruelty. And that is not attractive. When Jesus was on the planet, we read that the common people heard him gladly. I know some folks who know the truth, and boy, they're hard to be around, hard to listen to. And when they tell you the truth, they tell it to you almost like it's a, uh, a punishment. Speak the truth in love. Because you are, after all, beloved children, demonstrated by the fact that God has sacrificed his son for you, has been patient with you, has been kind with you, has been gracious to you. Therefore, be like him, imitators of him. Be loving, be kind. Verse 2 says that. And walk in love. So because you are beloved children, now walk in love. Because you are children loved by God, now go love the other people that God loves. Now make sure that you represent him in a way that is loving and kind and gracious. Walk in love just as, here's your standard, just as Christ also loved you. Okay, so how much did Christ love you? Kind of hard to assess. Not only did he give up his body, not only did he die and take the wrath of God in your place so that you are not appointed to wrath, not only did he die to guarantee that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell you, seal you until the day of your complete redemption, 
So he accomplished absolutely everything necessary for your full, complete redemption and salvation eternally. I'm going to have to say, that's a lot of love. Mm. And so that becomes your standard, according to Paul. You're to walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And then he explains the demonstration of Christ's love. He gave himself for us. That's the ultimate demonstration of love. So much so that Paul could write that that was how God demonstrated his love toward us. That he gave his son. And that his son gave his life. And that life gave us the Holy Spirit which sealed us for all eternity. Which gave us a tremendous amount of surety. Gives us a great deal of confidence. And should also make us reflectively loving. Because after all, you are an ambassador of Christ Jesus here on the planet. And if people know you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and you walk around being a jerk, then what does that say about how Christ is? So here you are told by Paul that you are to reflect Christ, and the first way you are to reflect him, the first way you are to imitate him, that you are a disciple of his, the first way to do that is to be loving. It all starts there. Everything else flows out of that. But it starts at being loving and kind, gracious to each other. Because he gave himself up as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There is so much theology packed into that phrase that we have to take a few moments here and kind of unpack it. He was both an offering and a sacrifice. To the Jewish mind, they understood the difference. And they understood the similarity. In fact, turn to the book of Hebrews, if you would, for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10, and that will help us to kind of unpack what's being said here. You had to bring animals to God as an offering. You could bring also wine as a drink offering. You could bring your grain as a sheave offering. You'd bring the first fruit of all your labor as a first fruit offering. And what that means is to give it over to God. But then if it was an animal that you were giving as an offering, that animal then became the victim. He was then destroyed for God's glory as a sin offering, as a trespass offering. But one of the most substantial offerings that you could give in the Old Testament was what was known as a sweet savor offering. And what that meant was you would take something that was the best of what you had. I mean, if you're living in an agricultural society and you have a really good, healthy, unblemished animal, then you want to breed that animal. That's going to add to your financial well-being. But you could bring the best of what you had, an animal that was good for food, that was good for milk, that was good for breeding, that didn't have any sickness, that was spotless, that wasn't blemished. You could bring something to God as a sweet savor offering, and what that meant was it would be burned for no other reason than to bring that scent of sacrifice into the nostrils of God. And that was a sacrifice that is spoken of repeatedly as being very pleasing to God. When people would bring sweet aromas to God. And when he smelled sacrifices that people gave for no other reason than to demonstrate the worship and the glory of God. That brought great joy to God. So Paul has told us that Christ Jesus first was the offering, and he's the one who made the offering. He's the one who gave himself as an offering to God. But then he was also the victim. He was also the sacrifice. He was also the one who gave his blood, who gave his life. And then Paul ties together the third portion and says, and he was a sweet savor. 
God was so pleased with what his son accomplished that it sent this sweet aroma into the nostrils of God as Christ accomplished everything he came to the planet to accomplish, which is why on the cross he could say definitively, it's finished. I've done everything I came here to do. Here, let's see how the writer of Hebrews describes it. And you're going to see him use the words offering and sacrifice because Christ was both. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. I'm really interested in verses 8 to 14, but I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Anyway, for the law, the law of Moses, the law at Mount Sinai, since it only is a shadow of the good things to come and is not the very substance, the very form of those things, it can never By the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, it can never make perfect those who draw near by their sacrifices. Paul is arguing. I think Paul is, if not the writer of the book of Hebrews, it's certainly Pauline theology, regardless of who wrote it down. He is arguing here that the law required sacrifices on a regular basis every Sabbath. Every new moon, every feast, every time a a month turned, you had to bring your sacrifice. Every time you were conscious and aware of your own sinfulness, grab an animal, go to a priest, sacrifice to God. There were continual sacrifices and continual blood running out of the Holy of Holies year by year and off of the altars in front of the tabernacle. Constant blood was running. Why was there constant blood running? Because Israel was constantly sinful. And so there were constant sacrifices. And those sacrifices kept being redone. There was no point at which you could say, okay, this is the one. I'm bringing in a really good sheep today. And this sheep is going to pay for my sin debt utterly and completely. There. That never happened. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that because they sacrificed time and time again, year by year, offered continually, that proves that those offerings never made anybody perfect, never completed the perfection of anybody. Instead, there was a memory of sin by those constant sacrifices a constant demonstration of Israel's sinfulness. So they could never make anybody perfect. Otherwise, says verse 2, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin because they're cleansed now. They're made righteous. They're justified completely by their sacrifices and therefore they would have no more conscious of sin. But they do. They have this continual consciousness of their own sin because the animals never could fully cleanse them. But, verse 3, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Each time that they had to go sacrifice, it was a reminder, oh yeah, you're sinful. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this. But the reason that you're continually bringing sacrifices to God is because you are sinful. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, when Christ comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the roll of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And now he's going to give us a little commentary on that passage that he's pulled out of the Psalms. 
After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. So he takes away the first in order to establish the second. He took away the first law that required continual sacrifice. And he established the second, which is the sacrifice of Christ. And the blood of bulls and goats that could not accomplish genuine redemption, could not justify you, make you righteous, could not cleanse you from your sinfulness or even your consciousness of your sinfulness. All of that is accomplished in the second sacrifice, in Jesus himself making the sacrifice, going to the Father, having the Father accept it. That means that that one-time offering was sufficient to accomplish what no blood of bulls or blood of goats could possibly accomplish. Behold, I've come to do your will. And he takes away the first in order to establish the second. Okay, now by this will, the will of the Father, behold, I've come to do your will. He's talking about the will of God the Father. By this very will of God, we have been Sanctified, made holy, set apart for God's personal, private use. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The importance of the once for all is in contrast with the nonstop sacrifices and 1,400 years of continually flowing blood. But Jesus Christ sacrificed himself one time, once for all, And that accomplished it. That sanctified us. That cleansed us. That separated us from ourselves and from our worldliness through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11 says, Every priest, he's talking about in the Old Covenant, every priest stands every day ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's the evidence that God accepted that sacrifice. That now Jesus Christ is sitting at the very right hand of God. God raised him up off the planet, enveloped him in the clouds, brought him right to his own throne room, and sat him down right there at his right hand. That's how pleased God was with this sacrifice. He, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time. When he rose and sat at the right hand, he's then waiting from that time onward, until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Now remember a moment ago, he said that the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of sheep, never perfected anybody, never fully made anybody completely redeemed. Otherwise, they wouldn't return constantly to sacrifice more animals. But look at verse 14, an astounding verse. For by one offering, Christ offering himself, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So he, by his single sacrifice, sanctified some people, and those people who he sanctified are now perfected forever, the very thing that he just got done saying. No animals can do that. Which is why they had to keep coming back and sacrificing animals because they never accomplished full, complete sanctification, separation unto God. But by his one sacrifice, he perfected for all time the ones that he sanctified, the ones that he set apart. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying... This is the covenant which I make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind will I write them. He then says, 
and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. If that sounds familiar, it's from the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, the promise made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, that God is going to make a new covenant, not like the old covenant that he formed with them at Mount Sinai. It wasn't going to be like that. It wasn't going to require a priesthood and a holy of holies and the constant killing of animals. Instead, he was going to make something qualitatively new, a new covenant of salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ, which fully accomplished what that old covenant could not accomplish. In that, it fully redeemed us, fully sanctified us fully made us righteous and justified before God because of the single work of Christ whereby he offered himself to God and then became the sacrifice to God and then became the pleasing aroma to God. Amen. You get it? Yep, sir. He did it all. He did. You are the gracious recipient of everything that Christ has already done for you. Because he just got done saying you couldn't do it. Didn't matter how many animals you brought. By the time you got back home after making your sin sacrifice. By the time you got back home you were a sinner again. You had to turn around and go do it again. And do it again and do it again. Because human beings. All the creatures on the planet. Burning the forests of Lebanon. Is not going to be sufficient. To pay for your degradation, for your sinfulness, for your depravity, when compared to the absolute holiness of God. And so something had to happen. God himself had to become a man and sacrifice himself to God the Father on behalf of men, so that, as Tom said earlier, so that faith in that finished work, we get righteousness in exchange for that faith. And it is all a result of grace, 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 motivated by the fact that God really, really, really loved you. Okay, I said all that to say, that's your standard. That's the kind of love that has been demonstrated to you. Can you see now why Paul would say, now everything you do among each other, start with love. Even when you tell the truth, do it with love. When you're empathetic to each other, when you lift each other up, when you come alongside each other, do it with love. When you correct one another, if you have to discipline somebody, do it with love. Because that is the hallmark of genuine Christianity. All right, back to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, knowing all that, Paul is also going to tell you how not to be. And he's really going to bring it down into three big categories. And he's going to mention them a couple of times. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet aroma. He satisfied all the Old Testament sacrifices. Even the sweet savor. That's pretty amazing. Okay, so what does it look like to walk in love? What does it look like to be imitators of God? What does it look like to serve out an apprenticeship and learn more about God and begin to behave like your master? Well, this is what it would look like. Verse 3. Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among saints. That word saints, hagios, is the same word that is translated holy. The word sanctified is hagiosmos. Those words are all intimately connected with each other. A holy God gave you the Holy Spirit by which he sanctified you or set you apart, therefore you are referred to as the hagios, the holy, the set apart, the separated. So recognizing yourself as being a saint of God, act like it. And what would that look like? Well, don't let any immorality or impurity or greed. Those are the big three that Paul goes for. But in the English language, you don't really understand the scope of those words. For instance, 
the word that is translated here, immorality, I think is a little soft because the real word is pornaya. If that sounds familiar, it has worked its way into the English language as pornographic, pornography. They all have that root, pornaya, to them. And it really does mean any kind of harlotry or adultery or incest or fornication, any kind of sexual depravity falls under the heading of immorality, pornaya. So he starts there. In other words, you have a body. God has given you a fleshly body. Your fleshly body has desires. Your fleshly body has sensual desires. And there's nothing wrong with those sensual desires in the proper context. But there are some people who aren't able to conduct their physical body in an appropriate way. But Paul starts out with, conduct your physical body in a way that is appropriate for the fact that you are an imitator of a holy God. And that the Holy Spirit indwells you And therefore, the Holy Spirit goes anywhere you go and participates in whatever you participate in. And if you're out there dragging him through the mud, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. And we just got done reading Paul saying, don't do that. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So that's the word immorality. And then impurity or uncleanness This is a very big topic all the way through the Old Testament. We don't feel it so much here in 21st century Christianity. But in order to go to the temple, in order to worship God, even in bringing a sacrifice to God, you had to be ceremonially clean. And you had to make sure that you hadn't touched a dead body or that you didn't have a sore on your body that was seeping at all. There were many regulations that could make you ceremonially unclean, and if that happened to you, you could not go into the temple or worship God. So it was very important to be clean. And so some translations use the word purity. Don't be impure either physically or morally. And so when you come before God, come before him in cleanness of mind, in cleanness of conscience before him. And then finally, greed, avarice, fraudulency, extortion, covetous practices. All of that falls under this word that is just translated as greed. We think of greed as people sitting around in a snidely whiplash way going, -uh -uh -uh," or Scrooge McDuck sitting on top of all his gold. That's not the whole range of what this word greed means. It means to mistreat people so that you gain an advantage over them. It means that you are filled with this sort of avarice that drives you to gain more stuff for you regardless of how much it hurts other people. You're willing to run over other people. You're willing to take advantage of other people. You're willing to swindle other people. So that is all part of this greed. Do not let pornaya, immorality, or any impurity, which means conduct your body in a way that you would not be making yourself unclean by the things that you're participating in and don't let greed or avarice even be named among you because that's just simply what is proper among the saints that just seems obvious in Paul's mind that if you belong to a holy God if you were inhabited by the Holy Spirit then you wouldn't do things that are clearly and obviously unholy because those things make you unclean And those things are not fitting for the saints of God, the holy of God, the separated of God. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk. That word silly talk there is ridiculous verbiage that you're using for the purpose of confusing people. Or that you're employing in such a way that you're not really helping people. You're not speaking grace to people. You're not encouraging people. You're not lifting people up. Instead, your time is spent in just 
empty talk. Then he goes on and says, or coarse jesting. It's a really interesting Greek word because it can be read in a very proper way. It starts with the EU prefix. It's good. It's good talk turned into bad things. It's good talking for the purpose of creating confusion for other people or even kind of, well, you know, I'm going to say something ugly to you, but hey, I was just joking. So don't be involved in silly talk, empty talk, pointless talk. And don't be trying to entertain people by saying lewd things and lascivious things and things that are improper for saints to say, even if it's entertaining to other people. Because that's not fitting, says Paul. Or if you're going to be yapping your gums anyway, if you're going to be using your mouth, if you're going to be talking, give thanks. He says, don't be into silly talk. Don't be into coarse jesting because that's not fitting. But rather, give thanks. If you're talking, then think about the things of God. If you're using your mouth, use your mouth to be thankful, to be grateful for how good you do have it. And to demonstrate to other people that that is the way that you walk. In a moment, Paul is going to say that behaving that way, walking like children of light, is the best demonstration of other people's darkness. That's the way to show other people what light looks like and to demonstrate that they are walking with darkened minds in a darkened world. You're exposing their darkness by the fact that you're living in the light. Verse 5. For this you know with certainty. Okay, remember what the three are. Immorality, impurity, greed. Now he's going to go back to them. This you know with certainty, that no immoral person or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, none of them have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now he is not saying that if occasionally you come across as a little greedy, he's not saying if you fall into sin and it happens to be an impure sin that you've fallen into, he's not saying then that's it, you're out of the kingdom. What he's saying is people who live lives that are marked by, that are demonstrated by, where the practice of their lives is this kind of immorality, this kind of Impurity, this kind of covetousness. If that is what defines you, then it's clear that you're not one of God's saints and therefore you're not part of the kingdom of Christ or God. It's a demonstration that you're of this world. Therefore, Paul is saying, don't be like that. That's what the world is like. Instead, be different and don't be involved in immorality or impurity or greed, which he now says covetousness, which is also greed. He then likens to idolatry. Okay, how much does God disapprove of idolatry? Very much. Anytime you put anything... Between you and your relationship with God, you potentially could make that into an idol. And he says, if you want the stuff of this world, if you are so greedy that you're willing to hurt other people, run over other people, get involved in all kinds of chicanery just so that you get more stuff, you've made an idol out of that stuff. And yet again, that is a demonstration that you are not a saint of God and therefore you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Is that obvious enough? So he's drawing real clear differentiations, real clear categories. This kind of behavior is worldly behavior. Don't behave like that. This kind of behavior is the kind of behavior that's appropriate for saints. Walk like that. Now I have to say this one more time, that Paul's theology is based on the indicative imperative. Paul is not saying, walk in holiness and righteousness and purity and cleanliness. Walk like that so that you can be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you are the blood-bought of Jesus Christ. You are the elect of God. 
You are the chosen since before the foundation of the world. You are already the saints of God. Now, knowing that about you, be like this. He never says, be like this in order to get yourself saved. But he says repeatedly, if you are among the saved, be like this. So keep those categories straight. Because if you say, you have to walk in a level of morality and purity and a lack of greediness and no idol worship. You have to walk like that and then God will react to you and save you. That's the kind of legalism that Paul has just said is part of the law that's done away with. That's why they had to keep coming back and killing animals. That's not the way it works. Instead, under the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith, instead you are saved by the finished work of Christ who loved you so much that despite the fact that you're like you and that you are immoral and that you are impure and that you are greedy and that you are an idolater in your heart, despite that, God loved you so much that he saved you despite yourself and then says, now quit it. Don't be like that. Do you understand that? That's why Paul could say this Christian journey is a process of becoming imitators of God. We're walking according to the calling with which God has called us. And therefore our lives are a reflection, or at very least should be a reflection of the God who called us who is a holy God, who gave us a holy spirit, and therefore we should not be involved in the unholiness of this world. All right, let's put all those pieces together. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. By the way, if you go to the book of First and Second Corinthians, you'll find every one of these listed within the church. These are problems that human beings have. And you see Paul calling out the saints in Corinth and saying, don't be like that, don't act like that. I'm just really, really happy and really, really reassured that when Paul found that kind of difficulty and corruption in Corinth, that he didn't say, well, then that's it, you're not a church. Instead, every church is full of sinful people. But that's why we keep calling sinners to Christ because he saves sinners and so that's why we keep preaching the gospel of grace over and over and over again because it is by grace that you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God it's not of works so that no one can boast that is all true it's in this same letter that's Pauline theology and yet having said it's all by grace through faith not of yourselves he then can say now act like this because your salvation is not dependent on it your Christian walk your Christian witness is and being imitators of God is and if your father loves you, the writer of Hebrews says, whom he loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. If you want to avoid the chastening and the scourging, I say, wise up, be a mature man, walk like a grown-up Christian, and avoid this stuff. Because if he loves you and you engage in this kind of stuff, he will correct you. Can I get a witness? Amen. I started reading and then I interrupted myself. As I was saying before I was so unceremoniously interrupted by me, but do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Why would he say that next? Because clearly there were people in Paul's day just as there are people today 
who were going to tell you, oh, that's not important. Oh, that's not a big deal. Oh, sure, it's in the Bible, but it's not the real chief doctrinal stuff. It's not really the important stuff. And don't worry. It's all grace. It's all at the foot of the cross. It's all by the blood of Christ. Don't worry. Your behavior is covered. You can now act any old way you want. We know them as antinomians, lawless people, people who have taken grace so far that they say, I can act any old way I want because it's all under the blood of Christ. Paul says, don't let anybody deceive you. I've told you very plainly that people who act like that are not going to inherit the kingdom of Christ because that is the way they behave. That is their practice in life. That is the sure demonstration that they were not chosen by God. They are not the elect of God. Sure, they might go to church somewhere. Sure, they might have a Christian t-shirt in their drawer. Sure, they might think that they're... But you can tell. God can tell. If I can tell, God can tell. By their behavior, are they truly disciples of God? Are they truly imitators of God? So don't let anybody deceive you. The only reason he had to include that warning is because there had to be deceivers. There had to be people out there saying something else. Or turning grace into an excuse, into a license for sin. He says, don't let anybody deceive you with their empty words. For because of these things, these things, immorality, impurity, greed. He's mentioned them twice now, just so you understand the categories. Don't let anyone deceive you. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So clearly the people whose life is wrapped up in immorality, impurity, and greed are the very same people who Paul is referring to as the sons of disobedience. So if those who walk according to the world, who walk according to their pornaya, who walk according to their impurity, who walk according to their idolatry and their greed, if people like that are referred to specifically as the disobedient then who are the ones who do imitate God and walk according to his rule? They're the obedient. We're obedient to the faith. We're obedient to God's standard. We walk in a way that is commensurate with the call that he has put on our lives, and therefore we are imitators of God. Therefore, we are obedient to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Don't let anybody deceive you. There's a lot of empty talkers out there. There's a lot of people who will say anything just to amass crowds to themselves, to amass disciples to themselves, and they'll say anything they got to say to get people to come follow them. And usually it will start with, oh, you're great, and God thinks you're a handful of aces, and you don't need to change, and everything is good. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're a depraved sinner desperately in need of the grace of God. And once the grace of God has been given to you, he expects you to walk like it, to walk according to it. And he has laid out what those standards look like and said the disobedient don't act like that. Therefore, if you're going to be an obedient son, an obedient beloved child, Look, I love my kids. That should go without saying. One more than the other, I'm not going to mention which. Um, Now, I said that for James's sake because he's sitting in the back. Look, I love my kids. But raising them, my love for them, expected obedience from them. Am I right? Yeah, I just looked right at Grandma, and she went, oh, yeah. (laughs) I expect obedience out of them. That's all part and parcel of raising them up as a good parent, teaching them the right way to walk, the right way to behave. God's the same way, which is why we read things like, as obedient children, walk this way. He loved you. You are beloved children. So walk this way. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Walk this way. 
the Bible's full of this kind of talk walk this way yes we are no longer under the law of Moses thank God I am free 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 no longer am I under the law of Moses which could not save anybody we just read that it could only condemn us but that doesn't mean that I'm free from the standards and expectations of God instead all he did was in the law it was do this and be saved under the new covenant it is Christ did it now you're saved now do this understand the difference look I'll make it real easy I'll make it real obvious for you there are certain rules in the old covenant in the law I'm gonna try to think of a real obvious one. Oh, here's a real obvious one there are regulations against bestiality okay that exists just because we're under the new covenant is that okay now no it's still the standard of God but we don't perform that standard in order to be saved we perform to that standard because we are indeed saved let no one deceive you with any empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore the sons of disobedience the people of the world who act like that therefore do not be partakers with them how many of you when you were kids heard your mother say oh I suppose if Johnny Miller jumped off a cliff you'd jump off the cliff <laughs> Yeah, because we're just all great joiner inners. And it's real easy to blame your behavior on, well, everybody's doing it. Or let's go for the macro. Well, Congress says it's constitutional. So everybody's participating in it, so that must make it okay, right? Paul says, don't partake with them. They're the children of disobedience. They are the children that demonstrate their disobedience by the fact that they do walk in immorality and impurity and greed and idolatry. So don't even participate with them. Don't be partakers with them. Because you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord that the Greek word that's translated learn there means to test it to try it to experience it to actually understand it by doing it and that's how you learn what is pleasing to the Lord and wouldn't you really like to hear when it's all over and it's all done and you leave this planet and you're standing before Christ wouldn't you love to hear well done yes wouldn't you love to hear Christ refer to you as a good servant well right here he says in order to be pleasing to the Lord you have to learn what that is you participate in it you do it you walk like it you're not only obedient to the Lord but you are an imitator of God a disciple of Christ and through that you learn what is pleasing to the Lord and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness why because you're not darkness you're light so then why would you participate in the deeds of darkness instead even expose them as I said a moment ago the very fact that you are light if you're in a group of people who are darkness the darkness doesn't overcome the light of God the light of God shines a light on the darkness of this world and so the very fact that you're here the very fact that you believe the very fact that you have faith the very fact that you are walking in the light and according to the profession that you make in Christ is going to be 
exposing the darkness of other people and they won't like it in you and they'll call you a Bible thumper and they'll call you oh you're holier than thou and they'll say oh are you trying to make me feel bad and they'll they'll try to get you to come down to their level because there's pleasure in company and people want to drag you down because as long as you stand for the righteousness of Christ in and amongst a dark world, the more you're like a shining beacon that says, God is real, Christ is real, and judgment is real. And they don't want to know that, and they don't want to hear that, and they want to avoid that, and they'll do anything in this lifetime, fill their time with all kinds of nonsense and trivia in order to not have to think about the fact that judgment is real and judgment is coming. So they're going to tell you to sit down and shut up. But by walking according to your confession, walking according to the fact that you are a beloved child, walking as an imitator of God, by walking that way, you expose the darkness of this world. Instead, expose it. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed to the light. That's just a physical reality. Walk into a dark room. If there's a black cat there, you can't see him. Get out a flashlight. You're finding the cat right away. Because everything, no matter how dark, when you shine light on it, it's going to be exposed. And God, by his light, is going to expose the deeds and the works of the darkness of this world. And you walking according to that light that you live in is a sure demonstration that the world is dark. And all these things are going to become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Let me just read to the end of this chapter. We'll call it a morning and next week we'll pick up here and dig in a little deeper to it. But for this reason, it says, he's now going to quote from the scripture, awake sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. By the way, he's quoting from Isaiah there. When Isaiah quoted it, he was talking about actual physical resurrection. Paul here is using it to say, you were dead, you were dark, you did walk according to the prince of the power of the air. You did walk after the sons of disobedience. That's the way we all conducted our lives before we were saved. So it's like life from the dead. Rise from the dead, walk. Awake, you sleeper. Christ will shine in you. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, not as foolish, stupid men, but as wise men. Men who understand the things of God. Making the most of your time because, can I get an amen, the days are evil. The world is evil. The world is dark. Therefore, Make the most of your time here on the planet. Walk as beloved children. Walk as imitators of God. So then, verse 17, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He's just told you what the will of the Lord is. But as you walk in it, as you try it, as you test it, as you learn it, you're going to become more and more aware in this lifetime of what the will of God is for you in your life. So then don't be foolish like this foolish dark world, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even our Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I hate to stop right there because Paul is still continuing the same thought pattern. But the clock on the wall tells me that we have to stop right there. We'll pick up there next week. If you come away with nothing else, come away with, who are you? 
Paul just identified you as the hagios, the holy, the saints of God, the beloved children of God. Therefore, don't act like this wicked world. I could have just said that in 30 seconds and saved you the last hour. But I wanted you to see Paul say it. Because Christianity is about salvation by grace through faith. But it's also about the call to holiness and walking like it. And all of that is very, very biblical. So make sure you have all the components of it. And whatever you do, everything you say, how you help each other, how you talk to each other, how you behave yourself, do it all in love. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.